Greetings again, everyone. And I bring you greetings from our London church, a number of people over there who came from all over the British Isles for an all-day marathon session that had me pretty well exhausted by about 10 o'clock in the afternoon. I began, or in the evening, I began speaking over there to our group about uh, 10.30 in the morning, and I think Mr. McBride and his family left about 10-something that night following a brief dinner. We had uh, about 60 for the morning services, and then because by word of mouth and the mailing list had been invited, we had approximately 100 for the afternoon services. And they had rented a room that was about half the size of this building, so it was wall-to-wall, and everyone was very pleased with the attendance. I certainly could not have met with a warmer, uh, more enthusiastic and uh, friendly group that seemed to hang on every word and just wouldn't let me alone with questions afterward. I was uh, finally forced to sit down after being on my feet for about nine hours and uh, took a chair and there were a group of people toward the rear of the room that gathered around and just kept on asking questions and talking about every conceivable subject you could imagine. So it was really a very good visit and I'm sure that all the British people enjoyed it. They'd certainly been looking forward to it for a long time. Twelve years. I've been planning and talking, and sending letters, telling them over there, Mr. McBride and the rest of them, for approximately twelve years that I'd be coming to England. So about six or seven years ago, well, I'm coming next year, hopefully, and then, you know, the next year and the next year. And finally, I was sort of shamed into it by one of our ministers who wrote to me and said, you know, the people in England really aren't believing you. You keep saying you're going to come over. They're just not sure you mean it anymore, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I have put by about $3,000 in my own personal savings account. He said, don't look this gift, gift horse in the mouth. He said, I want to send you my personal savings. If it's a financial problem, I want you to go to England. Well, that shamed me into it. Of course, I could not take his $3,000 and do it. The work was able to take care of it, but at long last, I went to England. I'm very glad I did. Went on over to Berlin for a couple of days, uh, came back on a long 11-hour flight nonstop from Frankfurt, and got in pretty much like an exhausted, uh, you know, dragged through the knothole backwards, red-eyed uh, shadow of my former self. While in Berlin, some interesting things went on. There are approximately 30,000 skinheads now in East Berlin and various other cities around the country, and it was quite an article in the European edition of one of the American magazines that is published in, in Frankfurt about how many thousands of them formed a human swastika out in front of the East German Parliament buildings the other day on Hitler's 101st birthday. And they were all wearing Nazi armbands, giving the Nazi salute and shouting Nazi slogans. In cities all over East Germany, and especially in East Berlin recently, there have been beatings of foreign nationals, especially people from India, or Bangladesh, or of any black-skinned countenance. They beat nearly to death an elderly Jewish man, kicked him while he was down, sent him to the hospital. There have been widespread desecrations of Jewish synagogues and of Jewish cemeteries in East Germany recently. So once again, it seems to be starting all over again. I warned our people many, many months ago about a man named Franz Schoenhuber, who was the head of the Republican Party. A couple of days before I arrived, the Republican Party and all other West German political organizations became legal in East Germany and are now free to operate. When you take a taxi trip from West Berlin to East Berlin, you are going back in time about 40 years. The shabbiness and the infrastructure of the city is so incredibly different that it's just a, a shock to the eye. 
I well remember when I first drove through Dekirk down to Aachen and to Essen and down to Kolenbahn and to Frankfurt in 1956, and we saw everywhere facades of buildings, partial buildings, a building that obviously used to have staircases and even painted walls of former apartments on an exterior wall where it had been bombed to bits. And almost every building you saw had huge big shell marks and holes and pock marks and obvious damage. And when you would go back in years past, like in the 60s, little by little, there were fewer and fewer of those buildings visible anywhere in West Germany. And finally, in cities like Dusseldorf or Bonn or Frankfurt or West Berlin, you simply could not find in any neighborhood the slightest vestige of any building that looked damaged from World War II. And in practical fact, all of those cities now are virtually new cities. They gleam with stylish, modern, beautiful buildings. The one exception is right in the Kurfürstendamm, the Charlottenplatz, right in front of the zoo, in one of the main intersections in West Berlin where the shattered portion of the ancient huge church with its two modern bell towers are there as a memento and as a memorial to all of those that died in World War II. When you drive across, it's quite a shock because when I was there in November, here was the wall, there was Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, Mark and David and I walked up to the wall and Mark took his camera and put it on one wall by Checkpoint Charlie and promptly an East German border guard came up and said, no, 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 take the camera down, you can't photograph here, you're not allowed to be here, and so on. Just the other day I got in a taxi cab and breezed right through there, there was no wall, there was no Checkpoint Charlie kiosk out in the middle of the street, there was simply one old sign that said you're now leaving the Allied occupied, occupied sector, and so on. But what a difference. And then coming back through the Potsdamer plots, there was actually about a mile of open land there that used to have a huge wall. There was nothing, just traffic breezing back and forth. But everywhere in East Berlin, facades of buildings with huge puff marks all over them never have been rebuilt. The entire face of the biggest museum where the Ishtar Gate of ancient Babylon has been actually reconstructed, lifted there and taken there brick by brick and put back together again, an awesome sight, with the original mosaic blues and the aquas and the golds and so on of the lions and the unicorns on the actual gate of Babylon has been reconstructed. The original tiles, the original bricks are there and used in that construction. And of course Pergamus or Pergamum it's called the Pergamum Museum, and the gigantic towers and colonnades of some of the ancient altars are there. So I went to that Berlin, East Berlin Museum, and the facade of the museum is bombs guard from 45 and more years ago. Now imagine a city the size of Chicago, cut right in two, and you go to the eastern half, and you can go to any telephone among ten, tens of thousands, and you cannot call the western side. Not one single telephone line exists between the two cities. Imagine a picture now of tens of thousands of businesses that suddenly are going private, of a nation trying to throw off the yoke of communism, of collectivism, of collective farms, of state-owned farms, and a production of foodstuffs and everything from tennis shoes to t-shirts by state-owned factories and to allow now private entrepreneurship or private ownership of industry and of factories and shops and people venturing with what little they put by to try to buy such a shop only to find the minute the walls come down that hardly anybody wants to shop in East Berlin. 
Not when they can get Reeboks and Adidas in West Berlin. Not when they can get the most glittering outpouring of goods, services, and commodities, and produce, and everything imaginable in those fabulous stores and malls in West Berlin. Unemployment in East Germany approaching 50%. In East Berlin, shops by the thousands going down the drain, going bankrupt, because nobody will buy their goods. They all flock to the West. And all over the West, the little trappies, the little automobile, as they, it's, it's called that, it was actually because the East Germans bought the tooling from about the 1955 Fiat Corporation down in Italy. And uh, they've been using the same tooling ever since. So when you go over to East Berlin, you see a 1955 model automobile. It looks like a little miniature with a little tailpipe spewing blue and black uh, soot out of it. That sounds like a sewing machine motor coughing away with a whole family crowded in there. And you can see them all over West Berlin. So when I got in there on Sunday, I landed in the middle of the biggest crowd I've been in, I think, in my life. I've been to the Rose Parade many, many times, but I walked out of my hotel to just take a walk and looked out the hotel. There wasn't very much traffic there. It's probably about a mile or more from the Kurpurstendamm. And I thought, well, I'll get my exercise, and I'll, it looks like it's Sunday evening, and all the shops are closed, and very few people on the street. Well, I turned, and I started walking down the Charlottenplatz. I mean, I heard music. I got to the next square. There were two big kiosks, and at each end of it, there were two bands playing and people by the thousands milling around, and for the next mile till I got to the old church, then for another couple of miles, in all directions, about eight of those major intersections or, or streets coming into the intersection were blocked from traffic. And apparently people from all over the outland and the environs of West Germany and East Germany, on a Sunday afternoon, all day Sunday, until the wee hours of uh, Monday morning, are allowed to set up a massive flea market there are huge wide avenues. In the middle of the avenue, parking areas, I mean a park-like area, not for cars, but with big trees, grass, park benches, and then, of course, cut by the uh, traffic signs and walkways. Then one-way streets on both sides, about four lanes. Then wide, wide sidewalks, and then the businesses. I was sometimes crushed up against the buildings trying to inch my way along, getting a little case of agoraphobia because I felt trapped. If you've ever seen the crowds after the Rose Parade when it's immediately over and they are shoulder to shoulder down the middle of those streets and, of course, about one million people come to the Rose Parade, I guarantee you I was in a crowd that I would number at least 500,000 in a matter of a couple of miles, little kiosks that were selling everything from buckles to leather goods to shoes to T-shirts to costume jewelry to cameras to clothing of every kind, boots of every kind, anything for sale. There were artists with watercolors and stuff scattered out in the sidewalk with little barriers around them, people going by almost stepping on them, him standing there hopefully that somebody was going to buy something. And of course, everybody was either munching on a frankfurter or drinking beer or maybe licking an ice cream cone, and I guarantee you 85-90% of them were East Germans that had come over there trying to find bargains and trying to buy things that their meager uh, you know, economic capacity. It was a, a surprising thing. So it was quite an experience. I wrote an article. I put, put it basically on my recorder, came back and began to transcribe it that I have with me here that I just fleshed out and completed today, entitled Wars and Rumors of Wars about what's going on in the Middle East as a result of Saddam Hussein's sudden attack at virtually defenseless little Kuwait. 
And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Is what is happening today in the Middle East the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon? Was this the fulfillment of the 11th chapter of Daniel, where the king of the south pushes at a king of the north who comes against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, and many ships, and enters into the countries and overflows and passes over? Verse 40 of Daniel 11. First of all, let's go back to see what Jesus said in Matthew 24. When the disciples asked Jesus what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the world after they'd been admiring the fabulous size of the big balustrades, porticos, and columns, and buildings associated with the temple, Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Interesting language. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Now, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul said to the church in Thessalonica that we're not to sleep as others do, but we're to be alert and that we're to be like watchmen and that we're to be aware. You see in the analogy of the virgins in Matthew 25 that half of them are asleep, not watching, and unaware, and their lamps are flickering and about to go out, a symbol of a reservoir of God's Holy Spirit that is on the wane and they're not spiritually active or praying or studying or really ready for the second coming of Christ, and that suddenly he appears. As Isaiah said, the Eternal shall suddenly come to his temple. And as Christ himself said, like a snare it shall come upon them, here at the end of the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. So therefore we're everywhere warned to be alert, to watch, to be ready for the second coming of Christ. Does this fly in the face of that? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled. No, it does not. Being troubled means nervous, disturbed, fretful, faithless, apprehensive, upset, troubled, worried. I'm not worried. I'm not apprehensive. I'm not upset. But I'm deeply and gravely concerned. And I'm alert, and I'm trying to hear and read everything I can get my hands on on a moment-to-moment -moment basis of what's going on over there, including just at the last moment before I came over here today, a live CNN interview because Kurt Waldheim, former Secretary General of the United Nations and presently the President after a very messy election in which some of his World War II records were dug up and it was alleged that he'd actually had a role in some of Hitler's Waffen-SS torture camps, Kurt Waldheim, the President of Austria, has taken a unilateral trip, gone to Iraq, and was in Baghdad and has apparently managed to somehow negotiate the release of about 80 Austrians. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What did he say to Saddam Hussein? What is Hussein getting in return? The people who represented all sorts of European and other news agencies were there with their cameras and microphones, and one of them asked him, what about the American hostages? And he just dodged the question. Again, with some of the rhetoric about the fact that the Americans are guilty of a terrible act of aggression, the bully knocks you to the ground, and then he says to you, now if you cry, that's aggression. If you get up, that's aggression. 
Can you imagine the insane rhetoric of this man who gobbles up a tiny nation, rolls over it with hundreds of tanks in the pre-dawn darkness, a little nation with a tiny defense force that was not able to withstand these juggernauts of T-34s and even more modern Russian tanks and, of course, French Mirage 1 F-1 jets together with some of the most uh, modern of the MiG-23 jets from Russia, devours the country, brutalizes it, his soldiers, many of them 16, 17, and 18, raping women, looting and pillaging businesses. They loot and plunder the banks and businesses and haul off gold bullion, gold and silver, and foreign currency in the order of somewhere around several hundreds of millions. The Kuwaiti family, the Al-Sabah family, are claiming he didn't get as much as a billion, but that may be up for uh, debate. He probably got very close to it. So... He has now brutally, savagely raped a country, and the looting and the pillaging is going on. His troops have surrounded and backed away from some of the Central European countries' embassies and our embassy and a lot of others, and you've been keeping up on that, I'm sure. But in the meantime, he is saying, we will burn the desert sands under the Americans and send their bodies home in black plastic bags because they are the aggressors and they are aggressors against our Arab holy places of Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. Let me tell you, the average American battle commander over there cares about as much and knows about as much about Mecca as they do a third-rate used rug dealer in a back alley of Riyadh. Most of them don't even know where it is. They don't even know why it's important to Saddam Hussein, and they couldn't care less. But that is the tactic of a brute like Saddam Hussein, who was exactly like Adolf Hitler on the day that he sent his troops across the bridge into the Rhineland, when he had a force that was a fraction, less than a quarter the size of the standing French army. When he walked into the Sudeten line, he was building continually. The French army could have stopped him then. The British army could have stopped him then. But they didn't. They went for appeasement. Let's buy time. Maybe he has had enough now. Maybe, maybe devouring and masticating this country will be enough. Well, then he wanted Czechoslovakia. So Neville Chamberlain went down and came back waving the famous white paper, It's peace in our time. The beast's appetite will be satisfied once he gobbles up Czechoslovakia. But they didn't know about the secret pact with the Soviet Union to also partition Poland. So in a pretext of dressing up criminals and in actually shooting them and faking an attack against a Nazi radio station on the border with Poland in the pre-dawn of 1939, sometime about September 1st, Hitler began to bomb Warsaw and massive armored divisions invaded Poland. Now, at the worst possible moment, and for the worst possible reason, because of a pact that had been signed in haste in a very unfortunate climate, because the British finally said, well, all right, we will go along with the march into the Rhineland, we'll go along with the march into the Sudetenland, we'll go along with Anschluss of Austria, and we'll go along with the devouring of Czechoslovakia, but we're going to stand by Poland. The furthest nation to the east before Russia, furthest away from the British BEF forces in northern France, then Britain declares war. But now Hitler has had plenty of time to build up lots of strength. His Luftwaffe is much, much larger. I'll tell you, what's happening in the Middle East has some bizarre uh, sense of deja vu 
of a dictator back in 1933, 5, 6, and 9, who precipitated World War II. If Saddam Hussein had been smart enough to wait about three to five years, he would have had nuclear weapons. And we need to give a debt of gratitude to the Israelis who back in 1981 sent their fighter bombers over in an interdictive move and bombed the daylights out of that nuclear reactor near Baghdad where he was already beginning to get, of course, plutonium stockpiles and was working toward a nuclear weapon. And remember, only a few months ago, you may have forgotten in the news, how at Heathrow Airport, both British and American surveillance and CIA and M1 cooperation netted some people who in the private sector were actually sending high-tech trigger devices which are necessary to detonate nuclear weapons to Iraq. West Germans, one of whom is now in jail, several West German firms have been found to be complicit in sending all sorts of technology to Iraq, which is the result which results in their construction and stockpiling of chemical and biological weapons. And that's an ongoing scandal inside West Germany. West Germany has also been found to be complicit in sending nuclear capabilities to little nations like Bangladesh. And thankfully, it's in West German courts, and they're trying to stop a little bit of it now. Now, Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. My articles entitled Wars and Rumors of Wars. Do uh, wars elsewhere or rumors of wars have anything to do with you and me? Would you say yes or no? Does it have anything to do with the Fort Worth Fire Department? Dallas Police Force? Anybody know what I'm driving at? Well, sure, you've been watching television, so you know that President Bush is calling up certain elements of the reserves, and many of these people have jobs, and some of them are fire chiefs, some of them are police detectives, some of them are professional people. And perhaps here and there you're going to find a lawyer or a dentist. And like when I was aboard my aircraft carrier in World War, I should say the Korean War, following World War II, about 85% of that crew were reservists. They were World War II veterans who had been out and gotten jobs and gotten into the professions and business and didn't want to leave their wives and families, but the communist Chinese advanced, and so they were called up, and here they were. Have you been paying very much more at the pump lately? Has it hurt your pocketbook a little bit? Are you aware of what's happening to the stock market? What do you think about interest rates rising if you're thinking about the American dream of buying a home? What do you think about the recessionary trends in the United States? What do you think about people who have been stridently demanding a cut in the defense budget who are now going to be shouted down by hawkish people in the Congress who are going to demand greater capability to airlift conventional forces in trouble spots all over the world who are not only going to be unable to kill the idea of supercarriers, and they were, of course, demonstrating at the christening of the George Washington only about a month and a half ago, which is now sitting over by Newport News floating and being finished out while she floats, America's newest supercarrier. But things like the B-1 bomber, the MX missile, and supercarriers that cost up into the billions of dollars, now there are going to be voices that will be stridently saying, we need more of those, so we just continue to sink in a sea of red ink. And the deficits grow greater, and as they do, foreigners who purchase our debt, who show up on a daily basis at the discount window at the Fed, and they are Arabs, mostly from friendly nations like Saudi Arabia, formerly the Al-Sabah family of uh, Kuwait, but people from the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and of course not Egypt, they're too poor, but some of the other countries, particularly West Germany and West Europe, and of course were heavily invested uh, by British and Canadians. They're very heavily invested in the United States and Japan. 
They basically own the government paper that finances our debt. A lack of confidence in the American ability to service that debt means they don't show up at the discount window. If history is any guide, every time in the past we have had a problem like this, there can be a quadrupling of our imbalance in payments, that is, our payment deficits between what we import and what we export because of defense commitments. If that is so, our current $200 billion per year deficit could skyrocket to close to a trillion dollars a year indebtedness. Do wars and rumors of wars affect the United States? Well, we're the biggest participant. We now have an estimated quarter of a million men and women in the Middle East. We've got F-111 fighter bombers in Turkey. And we've got F-4s and F-A-25s, and we've got A-4s aboard aircraft carriers, and F-14 Tomcats aboard the carriers, four of them over there now, and F-15s down in Saudi Arabia. We have massive amounts now of armored and mechanized forces over there that have been airlifted in big C-5As from bases all over the United States and forward NATO bases in Germany on an around-the-clock basis. And, of course, they've also commandeered Many big DC-10s and 747s and the airlines are now having to cut back on many of their international flights, and a lot of the airlines' pilots are having to walk off the job because they are formerly Air Force pilots, and they're being called up in the reserves. So, yes, it's a big thing, isn't it? Before we're out of this room, war could break out over there and could actually cost tens of thousands of American lives and hundreds of thousands of Arab lives and could also precipitate an attack on Israel. Let's just look at the prophecies and try to get an overview and see where we are, but first let me show you in a real quick rundown what occurred in a very few days after Saddam Hussein attacked little Kuwait. You're all aware of the three UN Security Council resolutions. There has now been a fourth one, 660, 661, 662, demanding immediate and unconditional withdrawal of Kuwaiti troops, uh, of troops from Kuwait, I should say, and imposing mandatory and comprehensive restrictions on trade with Iraq, unfortunately, that has a lot of cracks in it. That what is what makes me suspicious about Kurt Waldheim's unilateral action and going over there to beg the release of Austrian captives, but doing nothing for the thousands, approximately 5,000, Americans, Canadians, Britons, Dutch, Belgians, French, West Germans, 55,000 Filipinos, and many other people in Baghdad and Kuwait. The comprehensive restrictions on trade have got big cracks in them for obvious reasons. Cory Aquino's government, for example, has been very reluctant to allow the use of bases over there other than the two that we now have at Clark and Subic Bay because of the fact there are approximately 55,000 Filipinos that have jobs in Iraq, in Baghdad, and its environs. Egypt is really caught between, even though Hosni Mubarak has sent 6,000 troops to Saudi Arabia. There are, I think, somewhere around, uh, I think it's 200,000 or more, I forget. But the uh, annual wage earning capacity of the Egyptian labor force in Baghdad and in cities all over Iraq is approximately $1 billion. They can now no longer send that money home because all of that has been cut off. 
And who knows what's going to happen to all those workers that are Egyptians as a result of Hosni Mubarak going along with the UN sanctions and cooperating with the United States. It is a real, incredible, complex, tangled can of worms. Do you see why this man, this madman, is engaging in all the rhetoric against the United States and talking about Arab holy places? Because he wants to embarrass those Arabs, 12 out of 21 of them, who voted together with us to impose UN sanctions and those nations who have committed troops. And what he would do is if we were to attack him, he would immediately attack, you're ahead of me, Israel. If he attacked Israel, we'll get to that a little bit later on, and if, for example, shells or missiles like those silkworms or others carrying deadly chemical warfare like nerve agents or mustard gas would land in the streets of Tel Aviv and take a toll of hundreds of thousands or a million Israeli lives, I can tell you the Israelis would nuke Baghdad off the face of the earth and the loss of life would soar up into the many millions. And it would be a cataclysm beyond our ability to comprehend because that widening war would then probably destroy the entire oil production capacity of the Middle East, which would send Japan, West Europe, Germany, and the United States into a great depression, unlike anything we've ever experienced before, including 1929 or 1930, and would bring about the impoverishment of all of industrialized civilization. That would mean the overthrow of incumbent governments around the world. That would mean military marching, the building up of vast military forces, and the emergence of strongmen in nations unlike this democracy, in nations that have seen it happen before, including Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Germany, and of course especially Japan. So the scenario, in its worst case, that could occur here, a widening conflict that would actually result in a nuclear bomb exchange in the Middle East is virtually unthinkable. Is there a human being sitting in this room who is going to tell me when this speech is over, this sermon is over, that can't happen? Surely there's no one that foolish. It can. We all hope and pray it does not. If you ask me, do I think it will? My answer is no. I do not think it will. But I'm here to tell you anything can happen at any time. Now when I tell you the American Revolutionary War was nowhere mentioned in biblical prophecy. There's not one chapter or one verse to which you can point other than some esoteric, vague, subjective opinion involving the ultimate inheritance of Manasseh in this great land. The War of 1812 does not know chapter and verse. The Spanish-American War was nowhere mentioned in prophecy. The American Civil War is nowhere mentioned in biblical prophecy nor biblical history. The First World War is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. The Second World War and the extermination of 70 million people is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. There's not one verse from Genesis to Revelation that tells us all about World War II, when to expect it, who's going to do what, what about Germany coming through Belgium, all of that. It's not there. You can't find it. The Korean War is nowhere in Bible prophecy. The Vietnam War is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. 
Grenada, and Panama are nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. This current struggle is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. The only catch-all, you might say, we have just read, the only phrase which covers all of these struggles over a long period of time, and indeed lumps them all together at the time of the end where there will be many, many struggles and there have been more than 55 armed con conflicts since the end of World War II in which usually always at least one or another member or participant is a member of the United Nations. And there are others that have been going on. There was a nine-year protracted struggle between Iraq and Iran, and that is not mentioned in biblical prophecy. So when Christ said, You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. He goes on to say, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Now there, if you want to say, is World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq-Iran struggle, this war today. Yes, by all means, all of them are included in that very great, broad statement. But there is not one single chapter and verse in some obscure part of the Bible in which you can single out some forgotten old corner or nook or cranny of Zechariah or Obadiah and say, this was when Hitler sent his troops into France. It isn't there. It isn't there. But we will see the specific prophecies in a moment. He said all these, after he mentioned pestilences, famines, earthquakes in diverse places, are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Now, obviously not all of you, because he goes on to say, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. So this is a global overview of events and trends and conditions that would culminate in a particular specific event that he does talk about in just the next few verses. He that endures unto the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The gospel has not been preached to all the nations of this world. It has not been preached to China or India or Bangladesh or Pakistan or any of the Australasian countries. It has not been preached to the islands of the South Pacific, like the Tuamotu Archipelago or the French societies. It has not been preached to, as I said, China, which is a quarter of the population of the earth. My father, over there many years ago, giving a lecture on the laws of success to a group of educators being translated by a female Chinese translator, where his grand smash finale was that the problems of the world are going to be solved by a strong hand from some place, is not the preaching of the gospel to the Chinese government or the Chinese people numbering more than one billion. Does anybody doubt that? Is there a human being on the earth in the parent church or this who honestly thinks that the seven laws of success with a grand smash finale, which was not understood by the Chinese translator, who came to our television crew and said in English, what did he say? The man to whom she asked that question told me that personally. He was there. He was one of my own television crew for years. I'm the guy that hired him when they took the video pod over there. And my father said the problems of the world are going to be solved by the intervention of a strong hand from someplace. And she goes, what did he say? She didn't know what he said. Is that the gospel? Does anybody believe that? Well, of course it is not. But letters that went to the people who were supporting the trips said the gospel has now been preached 
And so my work is over, and it's all over now. It's reached every nation on the earth, and at last the gospel has gone to China. Well, that's why I wrote the Chinese embassy and sent a copy of that letter and a copy of the big ad in the Wall Street Journal and gave them the entire background of all of that uh, when I sent my letter to the embassy in Washington, D.C. many, many years ago. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And Christ said in the Great Commission of the Church, it is to go in His name. It goes in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and you do not leave out that name. You don't go to the Arabs in the name of Allah, and you do not go to the Jews in the name of Messiah. You go in the name of Jesus Christ. Now he gets mighty specific. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, let him that is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither him that is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, or those that are nursing in those days, and pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world of his time, no, nor ever indeed shall be. And he said, except God would intervene and cut short those days, not a man, woman, or child would be left alive. What is the one specific prophecy he points to? The abomination of desolation standing where? In the holy place. When Christ spoke those words, the temple still stood. When Christ said the holy place, it was just right over there through those walls. When Matthew wrote those words years later in about 55 A.D., the temple still stood. When Matthew understood in the Greek language as he is writing Christ's statement in the Aramaic, which he heard with his own ears, the holy place, he understood correctly the holy of holies inside the tapestry in which was the Ark of the Covenant, the original Ten Commandments, the stone urn that, conducted, con, that contained a little bit of manna, and the original Torah in the side of it, the Ark of the Covenant, and he understood it was the Holy of Holies, the holy place inside a standing temple called the Herodian Temple, the second temple, not Solomon's temple, but the temple that stood in Jesus' time. Quickly, let's go to 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, and notice the incredible parallel between this prophecy of the Apostle Paul and the prophecy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. Because in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, he is also talking about the time of the end and the nearness of the second coming of Christ, and said not to be shaken or troubled. Notice how Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled. Christ said, don't be troubled or shaken in mind or nervous or upset or worried. And Paul says in verse 2, don't be nervous or shaken or troubled or worried, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. There were those unprincipled people who would even forge a letter and put Paul's signature on it and claim to be speaking as God's apostle. That the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, whether that be visions or dreams or letters or proclamations or doctrines or arguments or whatever else. Because that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
In verse 8 it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall destroy with the spirit of his mouth. That ties directly into the last few verses of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation that portrays the second coming of Christ and says the first thing Christ is going to do is to lay hands on the beast and the false prophet and take them to the cliff or the precipice and throw them right over into the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna fire. And then we see in Isaiah the 14th chapter where people will say, Is this the man who did make the nations quake and tremble? And his body will hang up halfway down, and the beast and the false prophet are thus going to be killed. So we're dealing with the last two human beings as a type, in a sense, of Janus and Jane Breeze, the beast and the false prophet. Who is the beast? I mean now the individual. I mean the stupor dictator over ten other kings, presidents, premiers, prime ministers, or leaders of great nations, who is identified only in the Bible as the beast. Who is he? I don't have the faintest idea. I don't have a clue. Who is the false prophet, the Antichrist, who Christ is going to destroy with the brightness of his coming? That wicked who is to be revealed here in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians and verse 8. Who is he? Is he the current pope? Could be. There's certainly a possibility that he could be. But I'm not going to say dogmatically that he is, because this pope could be killed or die and could be succeeded by another, or even another. So I don't know the answer to that. Who is the king of the north? Well, he's the beast. They're one and the same person. I don't know who he is. Who is the king of the south? I haven't the faintest idea. I have a guess. I'll share it with you in a few moments. But I think we can make a pretty good guess about who the king of the south might be, so far as his nationality or his country or his place of rule or leadership. But I don't know who he is. Notice then that the abomination of desolation, which has been set up several times in the holy place in the past, Antiochus Epiphanes, who defiled the sanctuary, Titus, who did the same thing, and that it's to be repeated once again, is to take place in a holy place. Now, when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, the temple still stood. Paul was not talking about some holy place of the figment of his imagination out in some prophetic distant time, because Paul himself wrote to the Corinthian church, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It was not until his elder years that he finally wrote to Timothy many years later, the time of my departure is nigh, and I know therefore a crown of righteousness is laid up for me. During most of his ministry, and therefore the force of much of his writing, the Apostle Paul thought he would be alive at the time of the return of Christ. Therefore, this prophecy is not some prophecy that is put in double talk or secret language that implies Paul is talking about a, quote, holy place that doesn't mean the holy place. The holy place of which Paul spoke was the holy place that was inside the temple called the Holy of Holies that still stood in Jerusalem. Now then, let's take a look at Daniel, the 11th chapter. At the time of the end, verse 40, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and overthrow, overflow and pass over. The king of the north originally following the death of Alexander was Laomedon of Syria. The king of the south originally following the death of Alexander was Ptolemy Soter. Eventually, the person who is 
revealed in verse 21 of the 11th chapter of Daniel, was the final king of the north over a succession of the Seleucidae of Syria, and he is that abominable person. They called him the crazy, and that's what his name actually meant. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed Jerusalem and sacrificed swine's blood in the Holy of Holies and desecrated the temple. Once he is implied and is introduced as the king of the north, there is no other individual who is introduced, and the longest and most detailed prophecy in all the Bible, Daniel 11, ends with Antiochus Epiphanes never having been superseded by some other individual. Interesting, then, that that verse 21 is a very shadowy type of Adolf Hitler, and I've mentioned before that Heliodorus, the tax collector, revealed in verse 20, is the one from whom Antiochus Epiphanes took the kingdom during a time of peace and by flatteries and artifice. And Adolf Hitler did the same thing. And tax collector is the very meaning of the family name, Hohenzollern. When you come to a border with Germany and Belgium or someplace else, you'll see the word Z-O-L-L, Zoll. And Zollern means taxes or customs. And so Zoll is your customs or your tax box or the barrier at the border that you will see all over Europe. Hohenzollern were the tax-collecting family. The family name was Tax Collector. Isn't it fascinating that Kaiser Wilhelm was a Hohenzollern and Adolf Hitler was a vile person who came in and took over the kingdom in a time of peace and by flattery? Now he, the king of the north, that I believe is the beast, will enter also into the glorious land. That's Palestine. That's Israel of today. Capital, right now, of course, Jerusalem, as they have, have changed it. And many countries shall be overthrown. That could include Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, Libya. It could include all of North Africa, as Hitler once before attacked North Africa, all Arab states, all Islam. It could include Egypt, as it does right here, and it could include other nations, but notice that it does not include, very likely, Syria. It does not include Jordan, and apparently does not include Iraq, because those people are the Hashemites, and primarily are the Arabs that belong to the Hashemi kingdom, or the Hashemi or Hashemite family. And it says, These shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, which is Esau, which is Turkey, and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon, that I believe are the peoples of Syria, Iraq, and Jordan. They escape out of his hand. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So Hussein is not only not the king of the north, he is certainly not the king of the south. The United States is not the king of the north, because we're not occupying Palestine or Egypt. We're simply sending about a quarter of a million of our people over to help defend Saudi Arabia. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. You see a little bit of a, of a shadowy type in the fact that Saddam Hussein has looted the banks and the uh, gold and precious things, of course, of tiny little Kuwait. And the Libyans and Ethiopians, that's Kush and Put, which could mean peoples of Bangladesh and India and not the political entity of modern-day Libya, where Muammar Gaddafi is the uh, ruler, or modern-day Ethiopia, with the Dergue that rules as a kind of a committee in Addis Ababa. 
But tidings out of the East and out of the North, that's apparently not only the Soviet Union, but maybe China and possibly Japan, shall trouble him. Some intelligence indicates to him that there is an attack about to come from those forces because of what he's done. And we're dealing here with Middle Eastern oil and we're dealing with great wealth. Therefore, as a preemptive strike before these Eastern forces can attack him, where he is now in the Holy Land in Egypt, shall he go forth with great fury to destroy and to utterly make many away, or away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, between the Dead Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So, as you look at it today, the king of the north is the beast power, the fourth kingdom, the fourth world-ruling kingdom, which is not yet evident in the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, but is obvious in the second chapter of Daniel, and the seventh chapter of Daniel, the fourth great beast, and is the same as the first beast of Revelation, the 13th chapter, which is Rome. There are some who have speculated from time to time trying to deal with the Bible as a modern textbook of geography, not understanding that ethnicity and geography are two totally different things that ancient tribes emigrated, migrated, and left old lands, that the only people of whom the Bible says they settle on their lees like a picture of wine slowly fermenting on the lees, which is what is implied, are Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon or Ammon, and they remained there, as it says in the book of Ezekiel, and their taste or their scent remaineth in them. They alone, among all those other Middle Eastern races, including the Assyrians and the people who anciently were the Philistines or the people of Philistia, or the people today of Phenetia, who were seagoers and who had the great port of Tyre, who now exist at the other end of the Tyranian Sea, the Italian people who are probably the modern people of ancient Philistia or the Philistines, and who look exactly like some of the people in Lebanon, but there's a very great difference between ethnic groups and geopolitical or geographical entities. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the king of the north is some Persian or some Arab. He is not an Iranian and he is not an Arab because that fourth great kingdom that is represented by the ten toes that are going to fight Christ at his coming, the fourth great kingdom that was to emerge that was the kingdom of iron that stamped with its feet and break in pieces in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, and the great beast that rose up that is pictured in the thirteenth and seventeenth chapters of the book of Revelation was Rome. And by the time of Christ, that was a fact of history for literally hundreds upon hundreds of years. Rome was now in the ascendancy. And remember, too, that at all times, in all cases in biblical prophecy, the great false prophet is not a preacher of Muhammad. He is not a practitioner of Islam. He is a counterfeit Christian. He is a so-called Christian leader. He is an anti-Christ. He is masquerading as the real Christ. He is not a Muslim. There are some who have actually begun to think and to portray that the king of the north is some Persian trying to go back to history in Daniel 11 and insist that perhaps the Seleucidae have some sort of modern-day remnants in that area and that they're going to come from right there in the Middle East. Nonsense. The fourth great kingdom, admitted by all eschatologists and all of the, pro of the uh, biblical commentaries, was Rome. Most of them know that it was to have several revivals. Many of them do not know the identity of Israel, 
And so many of them, of course, have never known the real truth about events in the Middle East, which is why for literally decades most of the Protestant evangelical teachers have been saying that Russia was going to come like an avalanche and enter into the Middle East. Look at what has happened in such a short period of time from November 1989 till today. For the last 45 years there has not been one decision made in the Pentagon or the Situation Room at the White House or the Oval Office itself in which the idea, the apprehension, the question, what will be the Russian, the Soviet response has not been a part of that decision. For 45 years the worry about potential Russian involvement Massive Russian strikes. The Russians have the bomb. They've got the hydrogen bomb. The worry, the, the you know, fingernail-biting worry of the Pentagon planners about what will the Russians do. Why do you suppose the North Vietnamese had safe haven? Why do you suppose we couldn't go across the Yalu River in Korea? Why do you suppose we bled ourselves to death in Vietnam? Because of fear of the Russians. Because of fear of communist retaliation. Look at the difference today. You're looking at a man who stood in the pulpit in Big Sandy, Texas in 1960, in 1958, in 1963, in 1966, in 1972, and said over and over again on radio and television for decades, you're going to see the time when the Soviet Union and the United States will once again be allied against a common enemy. Did you hear what Gorbachev said yesterday? Do you know how the Soviet Union voted yesterday in the Security Council meeting? Do you know that not a single Pentagon planner or George Bush is worried one whit about what the Russians are going to do and that the Russians are cooperating? Now, how could I have known that? Nobody else did. I don't know if a human being on the face of the earth that made a statement like that, including any other minister in our church. There may have been some that picked up on it, but I wrote on it. I talked about it because I know that we are of the house of Israel and there is not a prophecy in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that depicts the United States and the Soviet Union going to war or the Soviet Union crushing us. Now here we are actually cooperating together and the Soviet ships are going to assist American ships even shooting the rudder off if they have to of attempts to break that blockade into Baghdad, the Shad el-Arab, and of course up into... Uh, the tiny little port of Aqaba, the one prong there of the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea, and to get around the embargo or the trade blockade. Fantastic things have happened just since November. For any modern leader of a church of God to portray to his people and the general public that the wall being breached, that German reunification coming about, that Europe beginning to grow together, that all of these enormous things happening are not, in fact, the beginning pieces of falling into place to portray the whole picture of the beginning of the end in the Great Tribulation is a serious and a grievous error. How ironic that at a very time when the entire world is so nervous that there are millions of Americans today that are crying, they are worried, they're making hundreds of calls, jamming Defense Department and State Department switchboards because there are thousands of Americans over there, and that means tens of thousands of nervous and worried relatives, that there are thousands of wives and children today whose husbands are overseas and could be cooked in some horrible warfare, could be blasted to bits or even mustard gas or nerve gas killed them. 
in a matter of hours. Now, if you take it for granted, if it doesn't bother you, well, I pity you. I'm, I'm sorry for you. That's too bad. You don't have the faintest concept of what is going on in this world when you can get in a jet and in about 12 hours from now, you could be landing in Baghdad and be right in the middle of it, and then maybe you would understand how serious a world it is in which we live. This is big business going on over there. It's not a minor little skirmish. It could result in one gigantic war. It could bring about, in a matter of months, the impoverishment of the American people and the loss of our way of life as we know it. In a few months from now, your automobile could be used as a clothes hanger. You could raise the hood and open up the trunk and plant some geraniums. Think about it. Because that's the kind of world in which we live. We're looking at a time when a general war, a conflagration in the Middle East, could just about destroy 50% of the oil production capacity of the world. Now we'd have to fall back on Mexico, North Sea, Nigeria, Venezuela, and the United States, and it wouldn't be anywhere near enough. So that means an incredible blow to our economy. Now, actually, in the long range, what is happening right now is this. There is no temple built. There is no catalyst that I see yet that is going to bring about a massive return to fervent religion on the part of the Jewish nation, who are largely irreligious, and the ultra-Orthodox, who and the Kahane, this one... It's merely another name for priest, but he's an American, apparently. American Israeli over there is an ultra-right-winger. You probably read about him a great deal that is actually trying to, uh, you know, get rid of all of the Arabs and just kick them out of there and annex the bank, the West Bank, and all the rest of it, and is looked upon as a dangerous man even by the Knesset. But there are a lot of people over there who are very much lobbying for the building of a temple. They're in the minority, but I think you've read in Time magazine that they've actually put together some of the brazen vessels and the cups and the bowls and all the various brazen vessels that are described in the book of Leviticus that have to do with the temple service and the sacrificial offerings are already readied. There is no building in which they can be offered. You can only speculate about one of three things that might cause some massive return to religion on the part of the Israelis generally. One, a war in which they lose the Golan Heights, the Sinai, and the Gaza Strip, and a whole lot of their own people, tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands. That would do it. That probably would bring about an incredible wave of religious fervor, of repentance, and of people so fearful about a new holocaust and being exterminated as a nation that it would bring about something very, very sudden in Israel. Second possible scenario, what if the Ark of the Covenant were discovered by some archaeologist in some subterranean cavern beneath the old wall or somewhere down in the rubble where they're digging along the north wall of the temple? If they were to uncover the original Ark of the Covenant, and in it would be the original Ten Commandments and the stone jar with the original sample of manna and Moses' rod that budded, can you imagine what, would, what that would do to the Israeli people? Something has got to happen to bring about the building of a temple or the discovery of a cornerstone or the ark and the erection of a temporary structure over it and its dedication. Who could gain more than any other human being and which nation could gain more goodwill than any other nation than the Pope and a united Germany in the context of a united Europe of guaranteeing the territorial integrity 
and the preservation of the Israeli race of people, the Jews, and the dedication of Jerusalem as a corpus separatum or an open international city to guarantee the preservation of the holiest places of the three great monotheistic religions. And wouldn't it be apropos for the Pope at some time where it looked like the Israeli nation was about to be nuked or maybe by chemical warfare virtually obliterated to say, I am going to go back to the ancient roots, the birthplace of the only one true church, which was Jerusalem, and which nation, Arab or Christian, would dare attack Jerusalem with the Pope sitting in his seat right there in a temple, especially if he had power to call down fire from heaven and if Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians, the Church of England, if people by the millions all over the world could see these amazing miracles, weeping statues, people being healed, fire coming down in the sight of human beings, and would say, he is incarnate, he is no longer human, he is divine, it is God in the human flesh, and begin to worship this man. That's what Christ says we're to watch for. This is one more round of either war and rumors of wars or a widening broad war, a general war in the Middle East. And this specific action in the Middle East, believe it or not, is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy. But in the most general terms, the region in general, but the specific prophecies I have given you, and they have to do with the building of a temple, the abomination of desolation, and then, he says, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, because then comes the beginning of the great tribulation. This is not the beginning of the great tribulation, but in the long term it may well be a terrible blow to the U.S. economy, a further weakening of our economy, soaring interest rates, bigger deficits, hard sledding ahead for our people, and one final thing to remind you of, it is like a loud whistle, a loud signal to two great peoples who are the world's strongest economies. In Congress, in the Pentagon, on the streets of America, I've already had one of my neighbors say this to me out at Emerald Bay, is a sentiment that I've heard and read. Germany and Japan have been able to dwell under our nuclear umbrella for over 45 years. They depend upon Middle Eastern oil far more than we do where are they? You follow what I'm saying? Lots of Americans feel that way. So do lots of Japanese. But the Japanese Constitution prevents them from interfering abroad. They only are allowed under the MacArthur-written Japanese Constitution self-defense forces for the immediate environs of their four home islands. The other day there was a debate and Cole himself got into it and certain people in Germany themselves and other Western journalists were asking Cole, why don't the Germans commit armed forces? They've sent but two minesweepers to relieve American minesweepers on station in the eastern Mediterranean so the American ships to, could proceed to the Gulf. That's all they've done. They have not sent a single German soldier. And they've got the fourth largest army in the world, I'm sorry, third, and the second largest army in Europe and they have not sent a single soldier. Tiny Bangladesh sent 1,200. Egypt sent 6,000. Syria sent 2,000. Not a single German soldier has been sent to Saudi Arabia because it would require 
a change of their constitution. I think this latest crisis and the threat of the life's blood of Japan and Germany is going to bring about such changes and I think in years ahead we're going to see, as I've said for many, many decades, the building of a massive German army and navy and the building of a world-class nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed Japanese navy and a large Japanese army. That's what to watch for. This is not the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon or the beginning of the Great Tribulation, but it certainly is a very significant event that could have far-reaching effect on the United States economy and on what happens in Germany and Japan.